thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say physics. Medicine. Nature. Or space. Time. The brain. Life. The universe. Today on The Naked Scientist, we've gathered together an expert panel of pundits to answer all your science questions. From just how prevalent was tooth decay in our ancient ancestors to how exactly did Neil Armstrong get back from the moon. I'm Kat Arney and this is The Naked Scientists. The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Joining us are astronomer Dr Matt Middleton. He's at the University of Cambridge and an expert on black holes. We have archaeologist Dr Margarita Glaber. She is an expert on looking at textiles through the ages and we'll be hearing about a recent and rare find of hers a bit later in the programme. We also have Felicity Bedford. She's an ecologist here also at the University of Cambridge. And we have virologist and the naked scientist himself, Dr Chris Smith. Right, let's start with one for you, Chris. We have a bit of a chicken and an egg situation here from listener Milo. Do cockerels lay eggs? Wow. What is Milo talking about? Well, to be honest, Kat, I think this is a bit more cuckoo than cockerel. There's not really any evidence that a male bird, which is what a cockerel is, ought to be able to lay eggs. Actually, what is an egg? Well, it's basically a pre-made incubator. It's a hard shell with albumin, that's the white, and a yolk in the middle, which is your embryo, and it's fat that the embryo is going to consume. Males provide sperm that fertilise eggs. They don't produce eggs themselves. So I don't think there's any evidence for this. It probably is more folklore, because going back in history, there is a story that people used to occasionally find what are called blind eggs. These are eggs with no yolks in them. And anecdotally, they said, oh, they've come from the cockerel. No evidence for that. What's probably happening is that when a young chicken is beginning to establish its laying cycle, it occasionally produces eggs that are all albumin, the white stuff, and no yolk. And it goes away as the egg production machinery inside the chicken gets more established. Male chickens got all the wrong machinery, all the wrong bits to make eggs. They can't do it. A friend of mine started keeping chickens and quails and she sent her husband off to get some quails and he met a guy in the pub who was like, oh, I've got this box of live quails. Do you want them? They're really cheap. And he said, yeah, brilliant. And they got them home and wondered why they weren't laying any eggs and they were all male. So, uh, oh dear. <laughs> yeah. I had another friend who, um, who said the best thing to do if your chickens are going off the lay is you feed them curry. So he fed these chickens all of his leftover curry and then one of the chickens sort of looked a bit unwell so took it to the vet and the vet said it's gone into a coma. (laughs) You are listening to The Naked Scientists. Our forte is science and not comedy. Let's have a question for you, Margarita. A question of tooth decay. Karachina wrote in with the following question and says, I've heard that dental caries, tooth decay, is found in only among one of 100 hunters and gatherers, whereas today every one in 50 of us is subject to tooth decay. 
what's going on? Why would hunter-gatherers have less tooth decay? I mean, presumably they didn't have all the wonderful toothpastes that we have today. What do you think? I think I know where this uh, question comes from. There was a study uh, just a couple of years ago by Dr. Alan Cooper and his team of the Australian Centre for Ancient DNA. They were looking at genetic material trapped in dental plaques, known as calculus, from skulls spanning from hunter-gatherers, so we're talking Paleolithic period, before about 10,000 BC, farmers from the Neolithic, so this is from 10,000 to about five to 4,000 BC, and all the way through modern humans. This material contained microbial DNA, which allowed them to build a picture of how and why microbes that we contain in our mouth have changed. The two main uh, species of bacteria that are known to contribute to tooth decay or carial disease appear in humans only with the advent of Neolithic, so with the appearance of farming. Uh, it seems a straightforward relationship, but actually it's not as easy as that uh, because we have evidence from um, contemporary societies that consume fair amount of sugars in their diet but do not have tooth decay like the Neolithic farmers did and unlike the uh, Paleolithic hunter-gatherers who supposedly had very good uh, teeth because they were consuming lots of meat and very little sugar. So in, in theory, they would have had like better looking teeth and the idea of, you know, uh, our, our ancestors with these horrible, hairy faces and, and horrible teeth isn't actually true. Not they just you had, can. Well, I know, you know, my ancestors. <laughs> but you know, they actually probably had quite nice, you know, nice teeth. Well, supposedly they had quite better teeth and at least the skulls that are preserved from uh, from those periods seem to indicate that they had the, them in pretty good shape. Uh, much better, in fact, than, than even our own teeth. But uh, to go back actually to the question what caused the, the tooth decay in the early farmers? It is the not the sugars, but actually the starches. And starches are recognized today by a lot of dentists also as the main cause of tooth decay. Because and what, not, starch gets metabolized into uh, sugar, The starch it? actually, yes, exactly. But it's also, it sticks to your teeth. And it's not just any kind of starch. It's the grain starches that do. And if you think that transition to farming and, um, and consuming grains, that would have been the major switch in human evolution. Uh, I, I eat eggs and my teeth are as great as they are. Matt, we have a cosmological quandary for you from Loesso who says, do bodies floating in space, whether that's stars, planets, whatever, do they spin in different directions? For example, are there some, say, planets spinning clockwise and other planets spinning anticlockwise? Okay, I mean, so the, the basis of this is conservation of angular momentum, which most of us will probably be familiar with if we watch Tom Daly dive and hopefully win gold at Rio. It's all about the angular uh, momentum. Is, though, it, is it really? Yeah, is it really? Yeah, yeah. So as a diver, be him Tom Daly or any of your other favourites, tucks in, they spin around faster. If they open up, they spin around slower. So that's conservation of angular momentum in action. And the other example of that is a ballerina. A ballerina, a ballerina is a really great or an example. ice skater when they're doing a pirouette. Chris, whatever you're the biggest fan of, really. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, back talent. to the physics. Sorry, solar system. Uh, uh, so we've, we've got like stuff spinning around. Yeah. A star forms from something called a protostellar disk. So you have a molecular cloud, these big things. Everyone's probably seen pictures of something like the Horsehead Nebula, these beautiful, massive columns of gas. And then eventually a star will form uh, when the gas cools and it actually begins to rotate. When it begins to rotate, it actually flattens and forms a disk. And in the center, you've got a, a newborn star. That 
disk is rotating, it's going to be rotating in the same direction as the star is rotating because you're conserving angular momentum. What makes it start rotating in the first place? Is it just like whatever it's random same, wobble is there? Yeah, and it'll it's go random one way motions that start because you start hitting things over and over again. They all start moving with the overall and overall angular momentum. It's like the average that so all the particles that come to the party to make the star. Yeah. They add all of their own bit of spin, That's right. and the average when you sum it all up, is all some going one, one way, some going the other, yeah. will will end up being in one direction, another yeah, band. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah so it's all <laughs> part of that collapse and that and that movement. But within that kind of solar system, would all the planets be yeah, spinning so, the same way? Okay. And what about our own solar system? Is everything spinning the same way in our own solar system? So many questions. Know, uh, okay, right? so this disk of gas, it cools, it forms planets. They have their own little little disks, and they. Therefore, they're going to be traveling in the same direction. So in a perfect scenario, you'll have a, a star in the middle rotating one direction. The planets will then also all be going around the same direction, the same direction that disk was going. And the planets will also be spinning the same direction as the central star. But, and I can use Chris as this for this. Chris, you can look <laughs> at me. Okay, so f- for me, I'm rotating this clockwise. But what direction does it look like for you? Well, you're turning a biro over and over <laughs> in your hands and you're saying... Yeah, okay, an ink pen. You're, you're turning okay. it over and over in your hand. Yeah. If you it's clockwise, for me it's the other way around. It looks right. like it's turning anti-clockwise. So the way it looks to us is just a matter of perspective. To say that everything is spinning in the same direction is, well, it doesn't really have any meaning. You have to put it in the perspective of the observer. But going back to our own solar system, there are in fact two planets that do not spin in the same direction, Venus and Uranus. We believe that they've just encountered another body. They're like kind of billiard balls smacking together that they then spun off the yeah. other way around. So Uranus actually spins almost on its axis and Venus spins into the direction. So they may well have encountered in the very early the early period of our solar system another body may have struck it, it's transferred angular momentum, it's now spinning in a different direction. So certainly in our own system there's evidence that things don't have to spin in the same direction. Fair enough. Talking about things spinning around, any dog owners out there? Prick up your ears and wag your tail, because we've got a question from Marnie that I'm sure you and your canine friends will love. Why does my dog turn round in a circle before it lies down on its basket? So Felicity, I've seen dogs do this. What are they trying to do here? It's actually something that is coming back from the time when they were wolves or wild dogs. They had to build a nest. So it's like the canine equivalent of pillow plumping, is that what you're saying? Precisely. In the wild, there would have been grass or snow. So they're literally creating a safe place for them to plonk down for the night. Um, a lot of people might also notice that their dog tends to dig at their bed. So that might be creating a hollow. And they will only settle down, really, once they're established their little routine. Um, instinct has been settled and they'll uh, go down for a nap. One person said to me that um, it might be that also by turning circles that it's forcing them to survey the landscape and they might spot predators or areas that are risky. That, that something could come and attack them from, so it kind of makes sure they're they're aware and vigilant. There's probably something in that. Could be that you know the the process of walking around scares off anything that might bite them, snakes, large insects, and the undergrowth that they're settling down in. There are so many reasons for this behaviour, but back in ancestral ancestral genetics, I don't turn circles in my bed when I go to bed. I just sort of pat the pat the pillow. Is that what you do, Matt? <laughs> no, uh, but I've got to ask because Kat asked me. Did they all turn in the same direction? <laughs> Now there's something that needs testing. <laughs> I don't think they do because um, unlike humans, which are strongly biased to be right-handed, 90% of people are right-handed, 10% left-handed, uh, in the animal world, it seems to break down 50-50. They do have a side bias, one paw or fin they prefer using, but on average, you get a 50-50 bias. The exception seems to be kangaroos, which appear to be dominated by left-hand use, and we, we don't really know why. Why? 
Greer here from Naked Astronomy. I wanted to say hey and tell you about my new podcast. It's an awesome audio adventure into the big black cosmos that we inhabit. What's out there? How did it all begin? And what will happen in the end? Presented and produced by yours truly, you can find it on most podcasting platforms. Just search Naked Astronomy. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Kat Arney. Today, I'm joined by our superstar science squad to answer all your questions. If you've got any burning queries, send them to chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can tweet at Naked Scientists and we'll see if we can get them answered in our next Q&A show. Now here's a question from our listener, Tim. I once read that the male sperm count has fallen a lot since 1950. Uh, The reason was not then known, and I guess that was 15 years ago. Perhaps it was pesticides, some people thought. Do we know any more now? Well, this story originates from a study by the Danes in the early 90s, and they compared sperm counts collected around the time of the Second World War with contemporary sperm counts, and they reckoned there had been a 50% decline in the samples they were looking at. A subsequent French study coming about a decade later suggested that uh, not quite 50%, but there was a similar big reduction in sperm counts. Some studies in Italy bucked the trend, and they didn't find any decrease in their population, but then the Italians, you know, then they like to be a little bit different, don't they, the Italians? So on average, we think there might be something in this, We also, if we look in the animal world, we see that there are reports of fish in waterways being exposed to human hormones and also other chemicals changing sex. And we can see male fish developing female sexual characteristics. We've also got studies of shellfish on beaches, which have been exposed to sewage outflows. And you see some of these shellfish developing evidence of being sort of transgender. Now, this appears to be because of exposure to various hormones and things. The evidence for that is between about the 1950s and the 1970s, there was a trend to give women, after they had babies or while they were pregnant, a chemical called diethylstilbestrol, DES. This was a synthetic form of estrogen, and it was done to do various things, including reduce the amount of milk that the breasts made to avoid mammary engorgement, which could be uncomfortable. But when those women then when they had children that grew up and they looked at those children, some of those children had genital abnormalities if they were boys. And this suggested that if you're exposed as a boy during development to oestrogen or oestrogenic-like chemicals, it can have consequences for your fertility. So what scientists are speculating is that we don't know why, but there may well be sources of oestrogen-like chemicals coming at us from the environment. Tests on drinking water don't show the levels are very high in Britain. That's not necessarily true in other countries. But certainly food, because of the exposure to animals, of, to the environment they live in, the packaging of food, plastic is in lots and lots of packaging, and, and plastics do leach chemicals that can have molecules in them that look like the oestrogen molecule, and they can bind onto the receptor that oestrogen would stimulate. That could well be having this effect. So the jury is out. We think that the effect and the observed effect is real. We don't know the chemical reason exactly, but we suspect some kind of environmental exposure that everyone is succumbing to because 
we are living in this world where these plastics are ubiquitous. Gosh, um, have we still got Tim on the line? Does that, yes, does that answer there. your question, Tim? Yeah, fascinating. Yes, I shall go and make sure that my cheese is packed very carefully in the fridge. I, I think the away. safest <laughs> thing to do is just eat it all. You're right. That, that would be my scientific <laughs> advice. Thank you right. very much for calling in. Okay, very interesting. Thanks. Bye. Margarita, let's turn to you because you've been working on Must Farm near Peterborough, which is one of the best preserved Bronze Age dwellings that's ever been found. Uh, I think people describe it as the British Pompeii. And people have been finding all sorts of pots, textiles, glass beads, even an enormous wooden wheel dating back to around a thousand years AD. So tell us about the dig. It is a fantastic site. I was just there on Friday. I will uh, be analysing fibres from any textile material that they find there. We have some textiles from the pilot dig that happened in 2006, and they're quite um, spectacular, quite exceptional, because, of course, textiles do not survive very frequently uh, in in Britain from that early period. And by textiles, are we talking about clothes or, or any, how would you define a textile? What sort of things are we talking about? There are many different definitions, and some people are more technical about it than others. So uh, in a a more strict uh, way of defining a textile, it's uh, fabric or cloth that's made on a loom. But, of course, we have a lot of techniques from prehistory, and Must Farm, of course, is a prehistoric site, that um, were pre-loom. So uh, a lot of fabrics were made simply by using hands and different kinds of techniques. When you say Bronze Age, how old is that? Uh, so in this particular case, we're in the late Bronze Age and the dates are uh, between uh, 1300 and 900 BC. So it's about 3000 to almost 4000 years ago, almost, so it's pretty old. Exactly. Tell me a little bit about some of the fabrics that have been found there, because that's, you know, 3000 years old. You think that things are going to disintegrate pretty quickly. What sort of things have been preserved? These are small fragments, so often we cannot tell what their function was. Uh, the reason why they're preserved is because the site uh, burned down and then uh, everything ended up falling into water and being extinguished almost immediately. So this water logging in uh, combination with charring uh, is very good for preservation of organic, particularly plant materials. That's why we have excellent preservation of all wood uh, on the site, uh, of any kind of plant materials, in fact. And in fact, all the textiles that so far have been excavated on the site are in plant materials. We don't have any wool, for example. When do you think we will get some of the exciting findings out? Where When can we look forward to hearing more about what's being found there? Well, I believe the next press release is happening on the 10th of May. And um, I'm hoping that there will be some information about some of the more recent finds. We look forward to hearing about it. Thank you very much. That's Margarita Gleber. Now, Matt, we have a question for you going from the Bronze Age to the Space Age. That's one small step for man. One giant leap for mankind. Of course, the famous words of Neil Armstrong when he stepped off the Eagle spaceship and onto the moon. But we've had Arun writing in and saying, how did they get back? We hear so much about how we get astronauts to the moon and into space. How did they get back home again? When the Apollo missions went to the moon, which is probably still regarded as mankind's greatest achievement, they went in a multi-stage vehicle. They started off in a Saturn V rocket, the most powerful rocket known to man. And that comprised something called the command and service module, which included as part of it 
a lunar module. That lunar module was the thing that went down to the surface of the moon. So the, the command and service module, or CSM, would all be around the moon. They dumped off the lunar module uh, with Neil and Buzz, because obviously we're on first name terms, and they landed on the moon, and then we all know what happened next. They and do the moon thing. They did the moon you know, thing. The moon yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. Unless you're a conspiracy nut. You know, they definitely did the moon thing. They definitely did the moon so thing. So how do we yeah. get them back off the moon from there? Uh, well, the beautiful gold foil thing that we all know and love, which is the iconic image of people being on the moon that's actually two parts in total it's called the descent module or descent stage and that landed and then they got back inside and the top bit blasted off so the descent stage was actually used as a launch pad and then you have the ascent stage which fired uh, propellant and the actual propellant is hypergolic so what basically happens is you have these these two chemicals as soon as they combine instantly Boom, blast off. And so this thing took them back up to the uh, command and service module and then they left lunar orbit. What's important to stress is that because the moon is so much smaller, they didn't need to have a Saturn V rocket, plus they weren't taking all that kit with them. Right, so because the gravity is lower. It is, it is lower. The, the escape velocity is five times smaller on the moon than it is on the Earth. Margarita? So the descent module is still on the moon? It is. Yeah. There's a yeah. whole lot of litter that we've left up there. We have there? left a terrible amount of litter. You know, there's something uh, now being developed called space archaeology. I think that's a prime Oh, really? Uh, is it really? Is that where you're going next? The, the fact that there are nice artifacts up there. There that... are so many objects now orbiting the Earth that, that people are seriously talking about um, starting. Oh, yeah. Space there's, a, there's a lovely headline, isn't there? Footprints that no wind has ever blown away. And they are there on the moon oh, yeah. surface from those first space. They, they also left really cool stuff up there. Like, so you can, there's a reflecting thing. So you can actually fire a laser and work out the distance to the moon. Yeah, the laser goes every day, doesn't it? We know yeah. the moon is moving two centimetres away from the Earth every, every year, yeah. owing to the fact that the time it takes the light to get there and come back is, is stretching out. Yeah, a little bit. And I think that's fantastic. It's still a legacy that I think we could all be proud of as, as humans. <laughs> Wonderful stuff. Uh, now, back to Earth, and we've got a question all about thunderbugs. Those are those tiny little insects that arrive in hordes during the summer. They'll home in on anything brightly coloured, whether that's your T-shirt or a, a football or anything like that. Uh, Ian and Julie have written in with this question. What is a thunderbug? We only see them around harvest time. Where do they live the rest of the year? Are they on the moon? They crawl everywhere, into photo frames, behind computer screens, into smoke detectors, which they set off. What are they doing there? Uh, Felicity Bedford, you're uh, an ecologist. What are these little things and why do they like doing this? Yeah, so there's something I come across quite a lot when I'm doing my fieldwork because they're found all across agricultural land. Um, there's something called a thrip. Uh, you might have known about them as being called thunderflies, stormbugs, cornflies, corn lice, thunderblights, harvestflies. There's so many names for these things because they do get everywhere. I thought I had a dead pixel on my monitor, <laughs> on my computer, because yeah, I had this black them. spot. And and then I realised that the dead pixel was moving and, and it had got behind the glass and in front of the LCD of my computer screen and there was a dead thing in there. And, and then it did die and now I have got a dead pixel, but it's not a dead <laughs> pixel, it's actually a thunderbug that's died in the screen in front of a pixel, but it looks the same size and shape. So what what are they doing? They're, they're, they're these little insects. Are they, uh, are they helpful or are they just pests? And why do they get, like getting into these tight spots? So it's about 6,000 species of thrip and you wouldn't really be able to tell the difference between them across the world because they're, they're, they're so small um, but looking at them under a microscope you'd start to see slight differences between them and they're, they're basically feeding on plants um, across all of those different systems so what you're going to get is some of them are beneficial some of them are helping with pollination but that's quite unusual they're actually largely pests because they damage the developing bits of the plant 
The ones which are attracted to your bright colours are flower thrips. They go into the buds of flowers and that's where they feed and reproduce. So they're, they're attracted to different kinds of things. So maybe Chris's computer one, is that a computer thing? <laughs> is it the colours that get them? Is it because my computer screen is, is a bright sort of exactly. light and that's why they just make a beeline, if that's the right word to yeah. use? A thrip line. A thrip line uh, into the screen. So yeah, insects that need to feed on flowers are attracted to bright colours. It's a fairly straightforward relationship between the flowers and the insects from that sense. Well, we can look forward to seeing lots of them this year. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Kat Arney. I'm joined by our superstar science squad to answer all your questions. Now, Chris, we've got something for you. ER Dr Tom has got in touch with this question. You mentioned on an earlier program that some hospitals are using brass and copper fixtures to help prevent hospital-acquired infections. I'm an emergency physician and wear a brass, copper, and silver bracelet. Does this help decrease the bacterial counts on my hands and make my patients safer or reduce the risk of me catching something from them? Here's a clip of the interview Tom's referring to. This was an interview that Chris did uh, back with Professor Bill Keevil from the University of Southampton in February. Copper's a very interesting uh, metal. It's actually quite reactive, and we found that with bacteria, it stops the bacteria respiring, so they stop breathing. It can punch holes in their cell membranes so that their constituents leak out, and it can destroy their DNA. We developed a, a model system where we simulated a hand touch onto a surface and putting several million MRSA onto those surfaces. They started to die literally as soon as they touched the surface. Your hypothesis then is that when the bugs are on that surface, the copper is producing all of these chemicals, the bugs find themselves in, in a really hostile environment and it just destroys them. Absolutely correct. And, and in fact, uh, it's been very exciting that partly out of the lab work we started, people have been putting different copper alloys in hospitals all over the world. And in every case, they're reporting something like a 90% reduction in the number of bugs you can actually detect on the copper surfaces. And what's really exciting, a study was undertaken, two hospitals in New York, one in Charleston, and there, looking at all the data, they're reporting a 58% reduction in infection rates. So I think that's a classic example of translation from the laboratory into the real world setting. Chris, you're a, a virologist. What's going on? Is wearing a metal bracelet like Tom's helping to uh, cut down his infection risk? The answer is, I'm sorry to say, Tom, probably not for a number of reasons. One, health control policies, in certainly in NHS hospitals in the UK, dictate that you're not allowed to wear wrist things like watches or bangles or bracelets and you're allowed one gold band on one finger, like your wedding ring. Now, the reason for doing that is that if you put bits of jewellery and other stuff around your hands, it actually impairs your ability to wash your hands properly. And the copper is really only toxic, it appears, when it's in close apposition to the bacteria, in other words, bacteria on that surface. There's not enough copper, although your arm very often does go that attractive shade of green if you wear one of these things, there's not enough copper probably leaking onto the skin to make much of a difference to your microbial burden. And you therefore probably will just succumb to poorer washing and hand hygiene than if you don't wear the bangle. So the best advice is not to wear it and just wash your hands really well. Thanks for that, Chris. Now, uh, anyone in this room a fan of kind of horror movies? Maybe, you know, films about mummies? Matt's nodding. 
Yeah, you know, films about mummies coming back. Well, we've had a question from listener Sarah. I was watching a documentary about Tutankhamun. Recent forensic examinations show that he was mummified without his heart. Scientists hypothesise that he was killed by being run over by a chariot and his heart was too damaged to be mummified and put back in his body. So my question is, what did the Egyptians believe would happen to someone in the afterlife who did not have a heart? Oh, have a heart, Margarita. What do you think? Well, ancient Egyptians obviously believed in the possibility of attaining life after death and all the preparations that uh, went into um, uh, getting the body mummified and put into specific kinds of tombs and uh, surrounded by various kinds of materials and imagery that would perpetuate uh, their life uh, in all eternity. Uh, The mummification process took about 70 days, so uh, you wouldn't be burying um, your mummy immediately. The body was um, prepared and cleaned and uh, immersed uh, in specific kind of substances such as natron so that it would prevent the the putrefaction. And because the aim of mummification was to transform the body for its new existence rather than to maintain it as it has been in life, internal parts of the body could be removed without really endangering the person's chances of survival in afterlife. And depending on the organ, they would have been treated differently. So it didn't actually matter that this guy didn't well, have a heart? Well, it actually ah. did because the heart had a special kind of significance. It was usually left in place because it was considered the center of intelligence because um, the heart was used in what is known as the weighing of the heart ceremony. And if you were not um, a very nice person in life, then you would not have been let into the afterlife. So this guy's kind of in trouble then. He Would he not get in the afterlife? Well, so the study that, uh, that Sarah is referring to um, came out a couple of uh, years ago and uh, that uh, was done by Chris Norton who uh, concluded after studying uh, scans of the mummy of Tutankhamun that he was killed by a chariot, uh, chariot crash. Now, a further investigation a year later actually uh, concluded that it's quite unlikely that that would have happened because scans of most of the bones indicated that um, all of the fractures of bones occurred after Tutankhamun's death. And Is that just a careless undertaking? <laughs> Smacking him around a bit. Yeah, well, <laughs> uh, yes, we bad. don't know, but that might come in actually in the theory that I'm coming that? to. How would they know these um, bones are broken after death and not during the death process? You can tell usually by uh, the, the different accumulations of um, uh, sort of calcification on the fractures of the bones. And so the latest theory that actually he did not die in a chariot crash. In fact, he probably didn't walk very well without aiding, so he would not have been riding a chariot. The latest theory, the reason why he uh, may have uh, not had a heart is because he is represented in death as Osiris. And Osiris uh, was dismantled and his heart buried, and therefore he would not have needed it in death. So... The mystery is solved. Here's another mystery for you, Matt. Your research does focus on black holes. What do you make of this question from Francois? We often hear that black holes are so massive that even life cannot escape its grasp. Then why do we hear that black holes spew out particles? Do the particles travel faster than light then? Jets are the most powerful events in the universe, jets from black holes. They carry away huge amounts of material and very often they're moving extremely close to the speed of light. 
say, 99.9% the speed of light. I'm sure that we all roughly remember around our GCSEs, something like this, where you could work out the kinetic energy of a moving body from half mv squared. Take that mass. Oh, cat's wondering about it, right? I'm a biologist. You're right, you don't don't need equations, yeah. Uh, No no statistical. Back to the cult. Yeah, so if you take the mass that's coming out of it, you take the velocity, clearly there's a huge amount of energy. And in fact, in our, there's a very nearby jet coming from uh, a supermassive black hole called Sene. And the amount of power that is coming from that is 10 to the 12 times the power that is coming from the sun. How do we know the jet's there? You can see it. So jets emit, uh, these jets in particular, emit everything from optical all the way through to x-rays and probably beyond. So, oh, so there's stuff coming out which is, is radiating this. Absolutely. It, it radiates across. So is it just radiation or is it particles? What is in the jet? So it, it is particles and those particles are radiating. Right. Okay. So es- essentially for those of you who want to geek out on some science, you have magnetic fields and you have electrons that spiral around those magnetic fields and yep. because they're constantly changing direction, they have acceleration. But why are they firing out of the black hole and where from okay. the black hole are they coming from? So the point is these are not from actually inside the black hole. The old adage of you genuinely cannot get out of a black hole is true. You cannot escape from it. And, you know, I will point, you should point people to the podcast. <laughs> um, but they're coming from close to the black hole. And in fact, in another nearby supermassive black hole, people have been able to use radio interferometry. So that's when you have multiple radio dishes and they provide a very high angular resolution view of these structures. And they've been able to work out that it's coming from about five times the size of the black hole above the black hole. So that's incredibly close in but real terms. What, do we know what concentrates the material into a jet? What, why, why isn't it just sort of spinning around, getting excited and then just radiating in all directions like our sun radiates radiation at us in sure. all directions? If you ever ask an astronomer a question, they can't answer. They'll always say magnetic fields or dust. It turns out it is magnetic fields and it genuinely is the answer. Uh, we know there are magnetic fields there because we see what we call synchrotron emissions. So these are the electrons spiraling around magnetic field lines. And that's why the, you basically collimate all this emission that's coming away from the black hole through these magnetic fields. So it actually does look like a jet. Perhaps worth mentioning that these aren't the only particles that we see from black holes. There's also Hawking radiation, and that is when the black hole itself decays. So you have a particle that's created on the event horizon. It actually is a particle-antiparticle pair. One of them goes into the black hole, the other one gets kicked out, and that's and how black loses, holes decay. The black hole loses a little bit of mass, and that Absolutely. makes it shrink. So black Absolutely. holes should evaporate over time. And that's why we're not going to be destroyed by the Large Hadron Collider. That's, that's reassuring, <laughs> yeah. isn't it, Kat? Yeah. It is reassuring. Thanks, <laughs> uh, from black holes again, back to Earth, we have a fantastic question from our listener, David. I'd like to know why it appears that there is very little tidal difference between high tide and low tide in, for example, the Caribbean. There doesn't seem to be any movement while I'm there on the beach, uh, regardless of what, uh, what time of day it is. Are you in the Caribbean right now calling us? <sighs> Of course, yeah. <laughs> colada chatting to you. I wish we were. Chris, what do you reckon about this? Uh, what, what, what's going on with the tides in the Caribbean? The likely reason for this is the same reason that you don't see very high tides in other parts of the Earth's surface, and that is that it's all down to how water moves. The reason water moves around the Earth is because the Earth is spinning inside the orbit of the moon. The moon is gravitationally attracting a bulge of water towards itself on the side of the Earth closest to 
the moon and there's also another bulge on the opposite side of the earth the earth then turns through that bulge which effectively moves across the surface of the earth and it's going to interact with land masses so if you have a certain coastal configuration that means that the water all heaps up in one place because it's got nowhere to go you're going to see a bigger tide there than if the water can distribute and flatten out easily really good example of this is the Severn estuary in the bristol channel you've got the patch of the coastline of wales and the north of devon and cornwall which narrows in like a funnel to a very narrow patch of coast all of the incoming tide gets funneled into a very small part of the estuary which heaps up the water there drives a lot of water inland very fast and then it comes out again and that's why you get these very big tides in some places when i was in australia last year i went to some of where the highest tropical tides in the world are in northwestern australia up where the horizontal falls are and uh, it's between 10 and 13 meters the tide there so that's the reason it's because of water having little place to go and being funneled from a massive ocean into a relatively narrow section of the earth's surface and if you have a lot of water entering a small area you're going to get a very radical tide height change whereas if like david you're sitting on a caribbean beach with a pina colada it's just all washing around you I think I should go on a naked scientist trip and find out. Now, Felicity, let's talk tuna fishing. In the news this week, we've heard how major supermarket chains have signed a letter campaigning to cut yellowfin tuna uh, catches by 20% in the Indian Ocean. We have just been talking about tides. And this is the head of the Indian Ocean Tuna Commission meeting in May. Now, you know, we import a lot of seafood here. I think the most seafood in the world is imported into Europe and also the main market for tuna. And is it going to be overfished? Is stopping this fishing of yellowfin tuna enough? The fish stocks for tuna are generally in a pretty poor condition around the world. And there are several different species of tuna that um, are under concern as well. And this is just one of them. Um, To make the point, this hasn't actually been protected yet. This is just the supermarkets and several other bodies, the the World Wildlife Foundation, all banding together to say this is what should be done. And that's a really good step forward. So hopefully in May, when that meeting happens, they'll be able to put into place some legislation that will protect those stocks. Um, So we're talking specifically here about the Indian Ocean yellowfin tuna because they have only been threatened in the last few years. Um, they're only just now becoming overfished. And hopefully being able to change that um, fairly rapidly would mean that we could move forward and, and actually restore those stocks. Because it does feel like we've been talking about tuna and tuna overfishing for so long. So how is it that this, this new species of tuna is, is now becoming a problem? You know, Should we just stop eating tuna? Why are we still eating it? So what we've basically done is changed from the bluefin tuna, the the biggest of the tuna, and we're shifting down the food chain a little bit. These are all predatory fish, but we're we're just decreasing the size of the tuna, the quality of the tuna that we're buying because they're becoming increasingly rare. Um, So there's something called the skipduck tuna, which is actually all doing all okay at the moment relative to the other species. But we're basically just destroying one and moving on to the next, um, which is a pretty bad situation to be in. You'd think we'd learn from our previous mistakes. So with this uh, kind of meeting that's happening in May, uh, talking about cutting tuna consumption, this yellowfin catches by 20%, is that actually going to be enough? It might be. It very much depends on the state of the stocks that they are at the moment. How bad has the situation become? Um, With fishing, it's really difficult to tell what these stocks currently are. And the fact that we're flagging up this as a a problem is, is a really good sign. But with fishing, it's better to do it based on the amount of effort that you put into fishing. So if you're putting in the same amount of effort, but catching less fish, there's something that's going wrong here. So 
reducing the stock by 20%, it might work. It might be the right number, but it would be better to put things in place that are based on the amount of effort of fishing rather than quantity. And should we all just basically eat less tuna? Would that be a good idea? Changing to smaller fish like mackerel, sardines, the stuff which could be a bit more sustainable. Certainly food for thought and maybe food for my packed lunches next week. Next, listener Jano wrote to us with a question about this new gene editing technology called CRISPR. Hello, naked scientists. Could CRISPR be used to fight cancer? I'm imagining it could either target defective genes that regulate cell division or by matching known DNA sequences of the cancer. Would this be possible? I've also been wondering about this, and I put it to Dr Nick Peel from Cancer Research UK to answer, as he's recently written an in-depth blog post for the charity all about how CRISPR is being used in the fight against cancer. The idea of, of editing out those kind of faults in DNA that might lead to cancer is, is, is an exciting possibility, but one that's a lot further away from what, what the scientists are, are currently using CRISPR for. What they are doing is, is taking things like, we know a particular gene fault increases the risk of a certain type of cancer, say, but we don't really know what it's doing, why it might be having that effect. So what we can do now is start to edit in those precise faults that you do see in, in people's own genomes and patients' genomes. Uh, and really start to see what effect that's having on those cells and build a clearer picture. If that then one day becomes something you can do in people is 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 a much further away discussion. I guess it's also very useful for building models of cancer. We've seen in the past few years how we've gone from having cancer cells grown in the lab to bits of tumours transplanted into animals to actually making genetically engineered mice that carry the faults that, that lead them to develop cancers. I suppose CRISPR is revolutionary here in that you can precision engineer those faults rather than going through the long and tedious process of traditional genetic engineering in mice. Absolutely. One of the problems with the older techniques was scientists were spending years and years and years only ever kind of getting to the top level understanding of what one gene might be doing. You can now engineer in multiple different faults in different genes. We know that cancer is a really complicated disease where it's a whole constellation of genetic changes that are going to be behind the disease. You can now start to piece that picture together inside um, a mouse or a cell or a relevant kind of model um, and get a much better understanding of how the disease works. Dr Nick Peel from Cancer Research UK and you can find his blog post all about CRISPR and cancer at scienceblog.cancerresearchuk.org. It's interesting, but it's interesting in the same way taking personality tests are interesting. They kind of tell you something you already know about yourself, but it's kind of reaffirming. In this month's Naked Genetics podcast, as the costs of DNA analysis come down, we've seen the rise of home genetic testing. But what do these tests actually reveal? Plus, digging up dog genomes and our gene of the month is totally legless. Listen and download now at nakedscientist.com slash genetics. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Kat Arney, and a fantastic panel of scientists, including astronomer Matt Middleton, ecologist Felicity Bedford, archaeologist Margarita Glaber, and virologist Chris Smith. Now, Margarita, we have a question for you. Uh, Stephen has got in touch and asked, how did people cut their hair in the Stone Age? We asked about teeth earlier. How did people actually get their hair cut? Well, the simple answer is with very sharp stone tools. We tend to imagine stone tools as something very crude, 
But in fact, if you think that the oldest stone tools found recently on the shores of uh, Lake Turkana in Kenya date to 3.3 million years ago, this is before the Homo species um, and even Homo genus has been around. So, but, by but the, we didn't know they were cutting hair, though, did we? Well, they probably weren't cutting their uh, cutting hair at that point. But if you think that uh, they've been doing this for three million years. Then by late Stone Age, to which the uh, question is referring, they were pretty good at making stone tools. So very nice, sharp flint knife or particularly obsidian, which is razor sharp. How would we know when the first hair salon opened up in the Stone Age era? When did people begin to really chop hair, do we think? Well, we know that humans lost their um, body hair, their fur effectively, about 2.5 to 3 million years ago when they moved um, uh, from sort of more of forest habitat into open savanna. And in order to be able to hunt effectively in the hot climate, um, they lost the fur. The only place where they didn't lose the hair was the scalp. The point of the hair on, the, on our scalp is to protect our head from the hot sun. Now, when people moved into more temperate climates, the hair became less curly, it became more straight and became longer. Straight hair gets more ultraviolet through which you need in more temperate climates so that you can produce vitamin D and have uh, better bones. There's less sunshine, so you need more light to get to your skin. But that said, there is also a theory that actually um, uh, a lot of this development has to do with uh, sexual selection, since long and healthy hair uh, is actually a sign of fertility and youth. You need a good diet, lots of protein, you need Mm -hmm. to be healthy to grow your hair. you need to be able to take care of it as well. But would people have taken care of it by cutting it or just by kind of washing it, styling it? Well, that is a million-dollar question, I suppose. What we do know is that by uh, late Paleolithic, when we have the earliest uh, representations, so we're talking about 28 to 25,000 years ago, when we have the earliest representations of human beings, and majority of them are female, um, we do have uh, fairly conclusive evidence that their hair was braided. So it would have been long and it would have been probably braided. Even if it was cut, it, they were still keeping it quite long. Men, on the other hand, the few representations we have uh, don't seem to show any hair on them. Uh, there may be various reasons for that. But uh, one of the explanations is that uh, hair, when it's not washed the way we wash it today with gazillions of shampoos, uh, would emanate a lot of odor. And that would uh, scare off the prey. So if you are a hunter mm. in the Stone Age, of course, you, what about scare off mates as not, well, perhaps? Well, that's. Um, but no, I, was I wasn't say, going more, there. <laughs> more, more sensibly, will it not also be a home for parasites? And so by trimming it, you're giving fewer lice and nits a home. And that is also a, a very accepted theory currently that that is the reason for cutting. But the, the cutting critical it. thing to answer this original question is that we haven't got any evidence before, say, 25,000 years of what people did with their hair, even if they were doing it, we can only therefore infer that perhaps because they had the means, sharp tools. They had the means, but whether they did it is an entirely different question. Who knows? What a great question. Matt, turning to you, last month, a quarter of a billion dollar satellite called Hitomi was launched into space to study supermassive black holes, your area of interest, neutron stars and galaxy clusters using gamma rays and X-rays. But something I hear appears to have gone wrong. The Japanese have lost contact with this satellite and the US Joint Space Operations Centre has detected space debris floating, perhaps where it should be. Is this 
something awful that has happened. Um, what's gone on? Well, I hate to be a pessimist, but it, it doesn't look good. Uh, just for the listeners, it's worth mentioning that this is going to be the next in the in the line of Japanese or JAXA, which is their version of NASA, X-ray satellites. This was going to be the sixth. And on board, it had this amazing instrument called the microcalorimeter. And essentially, it allowed us to look, not with great spatial resolution, but incredible energy resolution. So emission from neutron stars, black holes, they emit over a wide range of energies. You're allowed to look at very, very fine energies with this. So it was going to revolutionize the way we look at certain objects. However, there was a problem. It was launched on the 17th of February. And contact was lost on the 26th of March, which is a terribly short lifespan for something which cost 273 million US dollars. Um, so, as you said, the US Joint Space Operations Center observed a breakup uh, into 10 pieces on the 26th of March. And in fact, it's now 10. There's no evidence that the spacecraft was hit by debris, even though there is a lot in orbit. And possibilities were that it could have been the helium gas leak, so you actually need liquid helium to cool this brand new form of detector, um, or battery explosion, or a stuck open thruster, or something like this. And they thought the recovery may require months, but they were they were still optimistic. However, the news is less great now. Um, so it turns out they think well, they're, they're pretty certain what happened was that there was an instrument that told the uh, spacecraft that it was rolling, but there wasn't a roll. And so the thrusters kicked in to counteract this invisible roll, and so it started actually rolling. And, um, then, and then it sort of really started to get out of hand, and so it went into safe mode, which caused the thrusters, the most powerful thrusters, to kick this in, into an even more powerful roll. And it just spun round and round and then threw itself to pieces, sadly. Um, so the outlook is pretty bleak. They are still trying to, and if you'd spent two hundred seventy-three million dollars on an instrument, you would probably also try and you know regain contact with it. So the future is is pretty sad. I mean, the hope is that they will maybe build a new satellite, uh, you know, fairly quickly. The detector technology is already there, but it's it's a pretty dark day, I'm afraid. Pretty pretty sad news, I'm afraid. How often does this kind of thing happen? That that instruments that are sent up into space go AWOL or um, explode? Well, ex explode is, is kind of rare. Um, you generally build in a lot of redundancy into systems. You build in a lot of safeguards so that if this sort of thing happens, you can get in contact with it and shut it down. I can tell you immediately, so Kepler, another very famous mission that was in the news very recently, also lost contact uh, with NASA, uh, but that's now been summoned as it were, and is now back hopefully doing science in the next few months. And they, they don't know the cause of that, but it was nothing like as damaging as what happened to Hitomi. Also, X-Mem Newton, another X-ray satellite, they lost contact with that. So it does happen. You know, these things are incredibly complicated bits of kit, and they're in the most harsh environment we can possibly imagine. So bad things have a tendency to happen, sadly. And in terms of the research that's been done, how long did it take to build this instrument? Has it been a, a massive setback in terms of the, the science? to build the detector not so much because it's been proven i should mention that although it was only in orbit for a few weeks it has actually done some science and that the belief is i mean i can't i can't say i'm not not at liberty to do so uh, but the science it will do from that data is incredible absolutely jaw-droppingly beautiful so just from those those few weeks up there it's managed to get it's some good done stuff. some fantastic stuff it really has it's so sad that we lost something that could do that sort of science. And in terms of making a satellite, you plan decades 
in advance. We're planning for a, uh, an instrument called Athena that's going to be launched in 2028. And that got greenlit a couple of years ago. So it's a very, very long road to putting a satellite into orbit to do this science. Mm, not one for scientists with short attention spans. Really not, no. <laughs> Thanks very much, Matt. Felicity, here's a question from our listener, Stephen, who says it was reported on a show that there are bumblebees high in the Himalayas. Given that air pressure is lower and air is less dense at high elevations, do bees and other insects living up this high have flight adaptations to generate the same lift? So, yeah, how do these bees and insects fly in in different air conditions? So it's more to do with the way that their wings move than a specific physiological adaptation for them to be able to fly as such. So the way that bees fly generally is a little bit different to how you might expect. Their wings don't actually go up and down. They go backwards and forwards. And the lift is generated because the the wings are at a slight angle and they create little vortices at the ends of their wings. Low pressure air lifts the bees. So that's how they fly. And that's one of the things which caused a little bit of confusion when people were looking at bees early on and trying to say, how on earth do these things get off the ground? There's that whole thing about, oh, bumblebees shouldn't be able to fly, ha ha. But yes. clearly they can. A myth started by an entomologist of, of all people. But they can fly. They're very good at it. And it's because of this almost helicopter-like movement that they do that. So when they're at high altitudes... There's a a paper by a group that took some bees into the lab, put those bees into different air pressures and inside containers, and they looked at the way their wings were moving. And bees in the lower pressures were actually beating at the same rate, so same number of beats, but those beats were taking a larger arc. They were scooping more air effectively with that wing beat. So they were going further with their wings to generate more lift. Does this mean that they're having to use more energy? Do bees in the Himalayas get tireder? Do they need to eat more nectar? I guess they would do. They are, they're certainly doing more movement for, for each wing beat. Their wings are moving faster within each wing beat to cover that slightly further distance and, and um, effectively use more of the, the minimal air that is there. So. Why is the frequency the same? Why didn't they just beat their wings faster? Is that a nervous system pre-programmed thing that the wings have to beat at a certain rate, therefore they can't change that? I don't know. I guess it's something to do with that bees do vary the way that they fly generally. They're over-engineered so that they can carry pollen when they're foraging. Um, they can carry a lot more than their own body weight, in fact, despite them being these quite large insects with small wings. And, of course, they need to be able to adapt their flight to escape predators as well. So there is that adaptation within bumblebees generally even without taking this altitude into account and this must be one of the ways in which they can compensate thanks very much felicity that's great and let's end with our last question of the day which is from sam who asked this dear naked scientists what are the chances of dropping a full paper cup of coffee with no lid and it not falling over when it hits the ground this happened to me this morning i dropped my coffee It sprayed directly into the air quite dramatically all over me, all over a woman across from me. And I looked down and the coffee was just sitting on the floor upright. If it helps, it was an eight ounce cappuccino. I probably dropped it from a height of about four feet. So what's going on? How did this happen? Help me. Okay, so we are going to reenact your scenario here. We have a plastic cup in the studio with some water, and Chris is standing very close to me. All right, here we go. Drop drop the cup cup. straight down onto the floor. Yep. Whoa! Okay, that did not exactly work. So the cup kind of bounced on the floor, all the water has come out. But presumably, Chris, if you had made a a flat hit on the floor, would it have stayed upright? What are the chances of that happening? Okay, our experiment is slightly cheaty because this is a little plasticky cup. It's not a decent, high-density, heavy cardboard cup. 
But the fact here, it's all down to basic physics. If you have got a cup and you've got a liquid in it, you're going to hold that cup upright and you can see whether it's upright by whether the liquid looks straight in the cup because you don't want to spill your coffee. If you then drop the cup, if you drop it having held it upright, then the only force acting on it is going to be gravity, which is going to pull it down in a straight line. It's therefore likely to hit the ground in a straight line And as Isaac Newton taught us, everything's going to keep at a constant velocity unless some kind of force acts on it. Now, if there's no force pushing the cup to one side or the other, then actually all the force is the acceleration due to gravity straight down. If the cup lands straight on the ground, now it's got a lot of kinetic energy and therefore momentum, it's going to hit the ground, there's going to be compression of both the liquid by itself hitting itself and the cardboard in the cup. There will probably then be some elastic recoil as the cup goes back straight again, this will apply a force back on the liquid. Because the cup's circular, all things being equal, it will have stretched the cup outwards when it landed, so the cup will rebound inwards, and it will just squirt the liquid straight back up symmetrically in a column up in the air. So it should all come flying out all over the lady next door and possibly all over you, Kat. We just probably didn't drop this cup very well. Also, we've dropped it onto a carpet and carpet isn't necessarily a oh, flat surface. but it is surface. only water. It's not coffee. Yeah, so luckily. Right. So, so it may it may have uh, been slightly uneven landing. So there you go, Sam. As proved by science, there is an explanation for why your coffee cup could have landed flat on the floor. That just about wraps up our Q&A show, but we'll be back next week when we're turning to the unregulated world of shipping and finding out how it could soon turn autonomous. Thanks to producer Greg Jackson and all our esteemed guests this week. That's Felicity Bedford, Margarita Glaber, Matt Middleton and, of course, Chris Smith. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the SDFC, the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. I've been Kat Arney, and until next week, goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.